continuing this series called Weakness in Strength, Weakness in Strength. And the idea of this is that when we approach the Bible, uh, we often do so immediately at a disadvantage. And the disadvantage is that we sometimes subconsciously put a little wall right in front of us and the scripture. And so we look at the people of the Bible almost in mythological terms. And so that distances us from them. And we don't see some things about them as a result. Uh, but when we take the Bible a little more at face value and we remove some of that, that wall, we start to see some of the weaknesses of these people and some of the frailties of these people, the strengths, the weaknesses, sometimes the sins of these people, and it helps us to relate to them more. So if you're going to learn anything from this series, approach the Bible as if the people are actually real. Uh, James says, Elijah was a man just like us. I love that verse. I don't know if we, if we really believe that or not, or if these people are just so far removed from us that we've forgotten that they're people just like you and me. So we're continuing this series today, and welcome to those of you who are joining us on Facebook. You're watching live, or you are going to watch this a little bit later. Welcome to all of you as well. And uh, those of you who watch online, please send us some feedback. Tell us if you like it. Tell us if you don't like it. Just talk to us, okay? It really, really helps to know how it sounds out there, the feed, the visual, the audio, all that stuff, all right? Um, and you can, the advantage with Facebook is that you can always watch uh, online later. You can also listen to our messages through our website uh, or through uh, iTunes, okay? So uh, today we're going to continue this whole thing, a look at the frailties and the failures of some of the most known people in Scripture. So we started with, do you remember who? Those of you who were here, do you remember? Starts with J. J-O, John, John the, John the Baptist. Yeah, we started with John the Baptist and then we moved to, starts with an E. Oh my goodness. Yeah, Elijah, Elijah. We did two weeks on Elijah and then last week we did Oh my goodness, last week we did. Do you remember? Who? No, last, last week it starts with a G. Gideon, yes, last week we did Gideon. Okay, so, and today we're going to do somebody, another one with the name J. It's Jonah. Jonah, and I call this the vengeance of Jonah. Jonah is a little, little book in the Bible's Old Testament. He's called a minor prophet. We use the word minor because the material is very, very small, uh, but not insignificant. In fact, last year I did a whole series on the minor prophets and covered Jonah there. So some of this you may have heard a little bit uh, of it before, but I'm taking a bit of a different angle on it today. And uh, the reason is that Jonah, especially when you talk to people who are in church circles, the first thing that they think of when they think of Jonah is what? You tell me. Whale, yeah, they think of that whale. Oh, he's the guy who got swallowed up by a whale. And then immediately we have discussions like, well, how could someone actually get swallowed up by a whale? 
and live, you know? I mean, come on, swallowed by a whale? Really? Is that possible? And we have all these questions about how, you know, you talk to people who are not Christians. They say, you believe in Jonah and the whale, you know? And that's what we think of Jonah. But there's another way that we think of Jonah as well. Do you, something that Jesus said. Any, any of you who really test your Bible knowledge. So Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth, as Jesus termed it, three days and three nights. And speaking of his death and resurrection and using Jonah as a kind of a prophetic picture of that, and we have debates about, wait, oh, like three days and three nights, is Jesus in the tomb three days and three nights? I don't get it. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the math doesn't add up. And that's kind of how we think of Jonah. Those are the two ways. It's too bad. Because we really miss the point of the book of Jonah when all we do is think about him on those two surface level ways, okay? So I'm going to give you a little more today to think about when it comes to the prophet Jonah. And this is going to be really applicable, especially for those of you who have spent any length of time in church circles. Maybe you grew up in the church slipped away, came back, or you've been coming to church for a little while, but you, you know the, the lingo, you know the general message, you know all the maneuvers, you know all of those things, you know how to appear Christian, you, you, you know all of that stuff, okay? It's not foreign to you. This is going to be a particularly applicable to you, but maybe you're in this room, you're not a Christian at all, you're just investigating, just checking it out, you'd be surprised how this applies to you as well, but maybe in a different way that you're not used to, okay? So the prophet Jonah, uh, this was a guy who ministered during the 8th century B.C. So when we talked about Elijah, he was the 9th century B.C. Well, Jonah's a little bit later, about 75 years later. And he's, uh, the time when he lives is after the split, the civil war, uh, in Israel, which was in 922. I'll show you that in a minute. And before something that would take place later, the Assyrian invasion, which was in 722. So just to review for you, if you remember, Israel had this period in, most scholars say 922, some would date it a little bit differently, but it became a divided nation, uh, a nation at war with itself. And you'll recall that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, he had 10 tribes stripped from him, and they went north, and that became known as Israel. The first king was Jeroboam, and you remember Jeroboam set up a whole false worship system. They weren't worshiping Yahweh anymore. They were worshiping whatever else was available. He set up another temple and a whole structure of worship and feasts and holidays and all these things. And he had 10 tribes up to the north and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, just had uh, two tribes down south and that would be called Jerusalem or Judah. So the nation was at war with itself and this was because of Solomon's bad choices uh, the judgment of God was you're going to lose 10 tribes. You will be at war with yourself. So that's in 1 Kings chapter 12. You can actually see and read about how that split took place. Um, and then we see Elijah, uh, but then we see the prophet Jonah. 
Now, we don't know anything about Jonah except a little obscure passage from 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. And this is when there's another king in Israel. Uh, we call him Jeroboam II. All the kings in Israel, they were all ungodly, every last one of them. Down south, there were a few godly kings there, but all of them to the north were all ungodly. And we just see Jonah's name mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25 under the reign of Jeroboam II. And it says that Jonah was the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. We're not even sure exactly where Gath Hefer was. And there it tells us that he predicted uh, the enlargement of a piece of land. Uh, that took place under this king, Jeroboam II. So that's all we know about Jonah until he jumps onto the pages of Scripture uh, with the book of Jonah. And you can read the book of Jonah in about 10 minutes. Uh, last time we did this book, we actually read the whole book in the service. It took about two hours. We were here for a long time. Do you remember? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. So we're not going to read the whole book today, okay? But I would invite you to do that. I would invite you, you know, kind of for homework uh, to, to read the book of Jonah. It's, it is a fascinating uh, uh, piece of literature. And in fact, the Jewish people read this book in entirety uh, at the period of time of the Jewish New Year and the Day of Atonement because of what it teaches about the grace of God. And those holidays come in the Jewish calendar actually fairly soon, okay? So the prophet Jonah, this is the question that I want you to wrestle with as we, as we think about his life. What was the real reason why this prophet, this, he, was a, he was called by God, uh, as, a, as a prophet, to, they did two things. They, they, most of what prophets did was to remind the people of what they already knew but didn't do. So the prophet would come on the scene and they would say, Israel, you are not doing what you're supposed to do. You are not following the law. And I'm here to remind you, I'm here to get in your face, and I'm here to tell you that if you do not do what God has told you to do, problems will come. And that's when they would get into forth-telling mode, uh, or foretelling mode, and they would say, this will happen if you don't get your act together. So they would forth-tell, this is what the Lord says. You are not doing what you're supposed to do. And they would foretell, this is what will happen because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. So it wasn't the preferred job of the day. Most of the prophets that you read in the Old Testament were reluctantly called into that ministry, and Jonah was a prophet. Well, if you read the opening of, of Jonah right off the bat, you see that God gives him a very specific order. And God tells him, you need to go to the great city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and you need to preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And the story goes, as you look through the chapter there, that Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. So this is the question that I want you to try and wrestle with is, what is the reason why he did that? Why would a prophet of God, the man of God, blatantly and, and, and voluntarily 
disobey a clear command of God on his life. I mean, it's not like he didn't know how to preach. He knew how to preach. That's what he did. But the place where he went, where he was told to go, he said, no way, no, sir, I am not doing it. And we don't really know why, at least at the beginning. And so we're told that he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. I want to show you, it's already on the screen, just how far what his plan was. If you look at the little letter A there, you can see Israel and you can see Gath Hefer that we don't really know exactly where it was, but the people in this map put it in that region, you know, just north of Jerusalem there. And you see that little boat next to the, next to the red A? Do you see that? Put your hand up if you do. Okay, put your hand up if you're sleeping. Ah, you see, I told you Christians can be funny sometimes. So, uh, so he, he's supposed to go to Nineveh, which is uh, east, and Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. At that time, Assyria was a, a, an enemy of, well, just about everyone except themselves, and they were a military force to be reckoned with. And they were particularly known for their violence and their cruelty as they took over uh, nations. We read things in ancient history about the Assyrians, very powerful military machine and particularly violent. Um, and so he is told to go to Nineveh and preach against it because of its wickedness. And he refuses to do his job. And he says, I'm going to get in a boat and I'm going to head to Tarshish. Look at how far it is away. I mean, that's... You, that's for them, that's like the edge of the world, okay? That's way, way, he's going to board a boat. He's going to go through the whole Mediterranean Sea there, and he's going to go pretty well as far away as possible, at least to what was known then, and go all the way over there. Just to give you an idea of the distance there, if you put the, yeah, so Joppa, where, where, um, where he was called, is there on the, on the right side of the screen, and about 550 miles to, to Nineveh, he says, uh-uh, I'm getting in a boat, and I'm going 2,500 miles the other way. Wow. Why? Why did he do that? And so you have to read the whole book to, to figure out why. Uh, so you, you keep going, and you look into the different chapters of the book of Jonah, and you see what happens in chapter 1. It's kind of set up as a series of contrasts. Uh, where Jonah behaves one way and everything else behaves another way. So here you have Jonah, he gets in the boat and he's on his way to Tarshish. And lo and behold, we're told in verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And it was a violent storm that arose on the sea there and the ship was being threatened. Uh, and so the sailors, who all worship all different gods and different religions, they attach the weather to some sort of god. Uh, you remember uh, under Elijah, you had the god Baal, and that was a weather god. He was a storm god. So maybe you have some people who worship Baal on this boat. We don't know. But they think that there's religious reasons for this storm, and they start throwing cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Uh, Jonah was below, he was down in the deck below, lying down fast asleep. Hmm. Just, just, just to pause there, 
Uh, there are many people who say, you know, you know you're in the will of God when you have peace. Uh, let me tell you, Jonah had peace. He's fast asleep, but he's totally outside of the will of God. It's not always, oh, well, you have peace, you're in the will of God. Not always. Sometimes being in the will of God can create a whole bunch of turmoil in your life. Just look at Jesus, sorry, but just look at Jesus, Gethsemane, before he's about to die on the cross. He was, there was turmoil, so much turmoil in his soul that he, he sweat drops of blood. So much agony and so much turmoil going on because he knew that he had to face that cross. So it's not necessarily, well, you know, I'm sleeping and everything's good, so I'm in the will of God. Not always. So here's Jonah. He's fast asleep in the boat. People are panicking. They're freaking out. They're throwing stuff overboard. They go and they find Jonah. And they say, how can you sleep this storm? There must be some God angry at us. Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will notice and maybe we won't all die. And so the sailors say to each other, okay, we're going to find out who's responsible for this calamity. Because in their minds, in their belief system, they're saying, you know what? Somebody on this boat, their God is angry. And this is why there's trouble. And we are going to cast lots. It was like little sticks. And the one that was either the longest or the shortest, that would be, in their view, that would be how it would be determined that the person, the guilty party would be found. And so they cast lots to find out who's responsible for the calamity. And lo and behold, who does the lot fall to? Jonah. So everybody turns and they look at him and they say, what do you do? Who are you? What's your story? Because the lot fell to you. These people are not worshipers of Yahweh. They're worshipers of all kinds of different gods. But this is the way they interpret this thing. Where do you come from? What's your country? Who are your people? And so Jonah tells him the truth. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Oh, well, if he made the sea... Maybe he's the one who's making the sea do what it's doing. This is what they think. And this terrified them. And they asked, well, what have you done? Because obviously your God is angry at you. You say that he made the sea. He must be angry at you. And it says in parentheses there, they knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. He doesn't really say why, apparently. The sea gets rougher and rougher. What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? You, you, you say your God did this. You say you're running from God. Well, you tell us what to do then. What is, what's going to happen to please your God so that this storm will pass? And so he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. <laughs> throw me overboard. I'll walk the plank kind of thing. If you're into, you know, pirates of the Caribbean, I'll walk the plank and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. I'm running from God. He doesn't really say why. But look at the response of these sailors. Not believers in Yahweh, believers in who knows what. Look at their response. Instead of saying, yeah, well, let's throw him over. I mean, he, maybe he's right. Just throw him over. No. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. It's interesting that these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, they're showing grace 
to Jonah. They're giving Jonah a chance. I mean, he's one man on this boat. And maybe he's right. Maybe if they throw him over to his, to his certain death, maybe everybody else will live. But they will not do that. They're showing him grace. And they seem to have a rough picture of the control and the sovereignty of Jonah's God, even though they do not worship him. It's quite interesting that Jonah is disobedient, sleeping, and yet these non Jewish people, these people who worship different gods, seem to have a better grip than he does on the reality of things. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, uh, those of you who've grown up in the church, sometimes people who are not even Christians have a better grip on some things than we like to give them credit for. Ouch, a little bit quiet, okay. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I notice this sometimes, okay? So anyway, we, we, we see that they say, no way, We're, we don't want to do that, but it gets worse and worse and worse, and they cried out to the Lord, to Yahweh. They don't even worship him, and they're crying out to him, uh, and they say, oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. So they've crossed the line and say, you know what? We're going to have to throw him over, but we're asking you, whoever you are, don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. You have done as you pleased. Wow. I mean, they recognized to a rough extent the sovereignty of a God who they don't even know, and yet Jonah is in disobedience to that God who he does know. Do you see the contrast? It's, it's intentionally done there. And so at this, they, they, they take Jonah, they throw him overboard. Goodbye. And when they do, they offer a sacrifice to God, and they make vows to him. Take it real seriously. But lo and behold, the Lord provided a great fish to gulp, swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. So there's the, how he gets in there in the first place. We still don't know the answer to the question, why did he run from the command of God? Why would a preacher refuse to preach in a place where God told him, to go. I mean, maybe he was afraid. You know, I mean, uh, I've, been, I've been on a few cross-cultural missions trips now, and I remember the first time that I, that I ran a trip, you know, and I was in charge, it was to Port-au-Prince, to Haiti, and uh, I had a team of about five, six people, and I was scared. Like, I don't like creepy, crawly things and snakes and spiders and all this stuff. I say, like, oh, God, do I have to go and do this thing? You know, I really don't want to go there. They got voodoo and all this stuff over there in Haiti. Like, ugh, oh, I don't want to go there. Can, can we go to a nicer place like Florida or something? You know, like, why do we have to go to Haiti? Do you know, do you know what I mean? And sometimes it's just fear. Uh, sometimes it, maybe Jonah was afraid, you know, these Ninevites, the, the nasty army and all this, and they're ungodly. I don't want to go there. Maybe they're going to kill me, you know. Maybe I'm going to see snakes and scorpions and in my shoe in the morning, and, you know, maybe, maybe it's that. We don't quite know yet, but we move to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Jonah is inside the belly of the whale. We don't know what kind of whale. There's all kinds of debate. How could the guy survive in the whale three days, three nights? Da, 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 da. The, the Bible doesn't really do what we do. We sit and argue about the story. How could it be true? How could it be viable and all that? The Bible doesn't do that. It assumes that it's true. 
Even Jesus assumed that it's true. He says, as Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights, so I will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Literal, literal uh, burial of Jesus implies that Jesus took the story literally and felt that it was true and took it at face value. So, I mean, that's kind of the way it's intended. If you look at the prayer, he's inside the fish and he prays to God. But look at his prayer. I mean, at first glance, we say, Oh, yeah, I mean, he's calling out to God, and God's going to deliver him, and God's powerful. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. We say, oh, yeah, God answers our prayer when we're in distress. Yes, yes, yes. He answered me from the depths of the grave. I cried for help. You listen to my cry. You're a great God. You listen. You know, you're going to rescue me. You hurled me into the deep uh, into the very heart of the seas, and, and I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. You know, I will worship you. The waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, and the seaweed wrapped itself around my head, all kinds of drama. But you brought my life up from the pit, oh Lord, my God. You say, oh yeah, God's all powerful. God is great. God's a rescuer. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. But then look at verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You know what you have going on there? You have a guy who's praying fervently to God, but he is utterly unrepentant of his own disobedience. Utterly, because he never once in his prayer says, I disobeyed you, I repent, I ran from your call, I ran from your will, here's why, I confess it, nope. He goes through the whole thing about how terrific God is and how God's a rescuer and a worship, a temple, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, those who cling to worthless idols. You know who those are who cling to worthless idols? The Ninevites the people who God told him to go to, to preach. They cling to those worthless idols. They forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Ah, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation is from the Lord. You see, he prays fervently, but he's utterly unrepentant. Sometimes we do the exact same thing. He does not address the issue. He does not address his sin. He does not say why he ran. He doesn't even pick it up. And he is utterly unrepentant. And yet, the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Do you see how nature, as you look through the story, the Lord provides the great wind, the Lord provides a great fish, the lot falls to Jonah. All that stuff is obedient to God. And yet this prophet who is called by God is utterly disobedient. And not only that, he is unrepentant as well. Quite a contrast. So God brings him out onto the dry land. We're not real sure where. But presumably they didn't get very far because in chapter 3, God tells him, ha, 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 have you forgotten? 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. And so it says in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Oh, he's come around. Now he's come around, or has he? And he went to Nineveh. And now Nineveh was a very important city. You see later on, it's 120,000 people. That's big. A very important city. A visit required three days. There's a lot of pomp and vigor there. So first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed. He gets up on his soapbox. He's got his, you know, his, his, his poster on his chest kind of thing. And he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Oh, I bet you he loved preaching that message. Because to him, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That was his prayer. And so he says, Trouble's coming. It's going to take a little over a month, 40 days, and the whole city's going down. And the Ninevites, verse 5 of chapter 3, believed God. <laughs> the Ninevites, the, I mean, pagan, you know, violent Assyrian, they obeyed God. And they declared a fast, all of them. From the greatest to the least, and they put on sackcloth, this kind of robe that indicated repentance. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, and he covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in the dust. I mean, this is repentance. This is, they are really taking this message of Jonah very seriously, and they are in very sincere and authentic repentance. Even the arrogant king of Nineveh himself is in sackcloth and ashes. And if that's not enough, he issues a decree. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, even the animals. I mean, you talk about repentance. Wow. You know, let everyone call urgently on God. Which God? The God that Jonah was talking about. It worked. His message of repentance, his message of doom, his message of judgment in 40 days, it worked. Let them call upon God urgently. Let them give up their evil ways. This is a decree from a pagan king. And their violence, who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Hmm. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Do you see the contrast? You have Jonah. He obeys, but he obeys with Bad motivation. You'll see his motives on display in chapter 4. And yet Nineveh, pagan, non, don't worship Yahweh at all. They sincerely and genuinely repent to God right down to the end. 
animals covered in sackcloth. I mean, what a picture, what a contrast. And then in chapter 4, it's all going to become revealed what's going on here. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1 was greatly displeased and became angry. Huh? His message worked. His preaching was, I mean, you talk about powerful preaching. You've got 120,000 people repenting of their sin because of your preaching. And you're angry? I mean, if, I, if God told me to go to a city of 120,000 people and, and preach there, whatever message he told me, and that was the response, you think I'd be angry? I'd be happy. I'd say, wow, look at that. God kept his word. Wow, good, I'm glad, <laughs> you know, because I was just doing what God told me to do. And look, look at the response, good. But look at his reaction. He is angry. He's greatly displeased. He's very, very upset. Why? This is the answer to the question, why did he run from God in the first place? Why was a prophet who's called to preach running from this call? This is what he says in his answer or in his prayer to God. He prays to God in a state of anger. And he says, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home in Joppa, 550 miles away? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish, the other side of the world, if you will, behind God's back, if you will. This is why I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God. I knew that. Slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Well, what? So, so he's saying to God, I knew that you would save these people if I preached to them. I knew it. I knew you would keep your word because I know what your nature is and that is my problem. He did not have a faith problem. It's not like he didn't believe that God would cause the people to repent. He absolutely did. He absolutely knew in his heart that if he went to Nineveh, the people would repent because he had faith. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid of snakes and spiders and things that go bump in the night. Nope. His problem was the character of God. A prophet, a Hebrew prophet of God. And his problem, his issue was the nature of God. I knew what your nature, I know what your nature is. You're gracious, you're compassionate, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in love, you relent from sending calamity. It's in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. And it's also very suspiciously similar to a passage from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. If you put that on the screen, shall you, so people can see it. Uh, so it's, it's almost exactly word for word from the Exodus narrative there. And so obviously Jonah knew that story. And he's saying, it's your nature that's the problem. I knew you would save these people. You say, well, wh why, why would he not want the Ninevites to be saved? Like, what's his issue? Well, the Ninevites are ungodly, the Ninevites are violent, the Ninevites are pagan, the Ninevites are one of the arch enemies of Israel. 
I mean, and he looks at them and he says, you know what I want? I want them to perish. I do not want them to, to be saved. I want trouble to come on those people. Those people are this and those people are that. And those people, maybe they killed some of his relatives. Maybe they killed some of his friends and family. We don't know. But he does not want them to respond to the message of God. And he's very, very angry. And in his anger, he prays to God to take his life. Remember, Elijah in depression asked God to take his life. This is totally different. This is a man who's enraged with the nature of God. And so he says, God, it's better for me to die. I am so angry. And you know who I'm angry at? You. Because you would save these cruel, violent, pagan, non-Hebrew people. You would save these, these people. And God answers, verse 4 of Jonah 4, Have you any right, Jonah, to be angry? Like, do you really think you are justified in being angry at me? And so God's going to teach Jonah a little lesson. Verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down. And he, what he did was he pouted. He sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a little shelter, and he sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. So he's waiting there. He says, maybe the fire from God's going to come out of the sky and torch this city of 120,000. I'm going to sit here and watch. I'm not doing what God said. I'm not, I, I'd rather die. You know, I, I want God to kill me. Maybe the fire will somehow come out of the sky and torch them all. And, and it, of course, it doesn't happen. And the Lord God provided a vine. You see again the sovereignty of God over everyone but Jonah, it seems. The Lord God provided a vine, and he made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his little head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah, wow, he's got this vine growing over me, and he's very, very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, guess what God does? He provides a worm. <laughs> and God provides a worm. You see, he's playing. He's playing around with Jonah to teach him a lesson. God provides a worm. Even a worm obeys God. But Jonah won't. My goodness. I mean, you, you talk about an illustration there. So uh, a worm goes and he chews up the vine so that the vine withers. And the sun rose. Who controls the sun? God. And God provided a scorching east wind. So he's going to make Jonah very uncomfortable. No sunscreen back then. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. He's so angry and now he's getting sunburned. It would be better for me to die than to live. And God says to Jonah, asks him a question again, verse 9, do you have a right, Jonah, to be angry about the vine? Isn't the vine under my control? Aren't all things under my control? Uh, except you, Jonah, apparently. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And he says, I do. <laughs> I mean, this guy's mad as a hatter. He is so angry. He's as mad as a hornet, you know. I am angry enough to die. 
And you wonder why God doesn't just say, okay, good. <laughs> God doesn't do that. God, God does not. He does not give Jonah what he really deserves. Uh, he, he says, he just asks, asks some questions. I'm angry enough to die. Verse 10, the Lord said, hmm. and this is how the book starts to end. You have been concerned, Jonah, about this vine, this little vine that I made grow. Though you did not tend it, you did not make it grow, and you're so upset about this vine. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight, didn't it, Jonah? But Nineveh, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. It's what he's trying to say is they're spiritually completely lost. They are completely spiritually dumb. They can't even tell their right hand from their left hand, and many, many cattle as well. I mean, he's concerned about the whole city, the whole thing. And he says, and this is how the book ends, with a question. I think it's the only book in the entire Bible, correct me if I'm wrong, that ends with God asking someone a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And the book ends. Presumably, it was Jonah who wrote the book, but this is how it ends. And so why did Jonah disobey God? Why did he run from the call of God? Because he, it made him so angry that God would save and would even care about those people. And we can be exactly like Jonah at times, when we are in a situation today, fast forward, you know, 2,800 years, and now you have the church, uh, and you have the responsibility of the church to carry the gospel message to an unbelieving, ungodly world, you see. The Jewish people were responsible to do that, and now together with the church, we're all responsible to bring the message of the gospel to the world. To a large extent, the church is Gentile. It's not Jewish. I mean, I'm Jewish, as you know, but I'm the oddball, right? I mean, the, the Jewish people, very small part of the church worldwide. And God has not, he's not replaced Israel with the church, but it is the church's responsibility to bring the gospel message to the world, whether they're Jew or Gentile, it's their responsibility. But when we say, I don't want to share my faith with them, because, and we enumerate the reasons, and I have heard that so many times over the last couple of decades of serving as a pastor. Pastor, I can't stand it anymore. I do not want to work in that place anymore. The people there are all ungodly. The way that they talk, the way that they live, the way they make fun of me. They know I'm a Christian, da-da-da-da-da. I can't take it anymore. I just want to go and find another place to, to work. <laughs> Pastor, I can't live in this building anymore. Everybody in my building is... Totally non-Christian. I mean, you should hear the music that they play, Pastor. 
You should hear the things that they do. You should smell the stuff that they smoke. And now, of course, you can smell it a whole lot more, right? And we, and we make all these things. We say, Pastor, like the people who I work with, Pastor, they're LGBTQ2 plus XYZ, the whole kit and caboodle, Pastor. Like, I do not want to be around them. I do not want to share my faith with them. I do not want to catch what they have. I do not want to become like them. I do not want my children hanging around with their children. Do you know what that is? That's like Jonah. That's like Jonah. We've got to remember our responsibility is to give the people the gospel message. We cannot make the people become Christians, but we are responsible to deliver the mail. You are responsible. You who call yourself a follower of Jesus, you who are still watching online, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, he will hold us, he will hold me responsible. We are to deliver the mail. The more ungodly your surrounding, the more of an opportunity you have to shine God's light. It's very quiet. This is the reality that the church is facing. This is the reality that the local church and the church universal around the world is facing in the 21st century. It is the challenge to give people the gospel message uncompromised, but to not stop giving it. And the problem that we have is that it's so uncomfortable out there, you know, this nation is not a Christian nation anymore. This province is not a Christian province. This province has the worst statistics in the Western world in terms of the impact of Christianity, the worst in the Western world. Wow, what an opportunity you and I have. What an opportunity. It's a golden opportunity. Put me in the most ungodly place, please, because I do not want to be like Jonah. Not in the way that he was there. Because Jonah, it was the grace of God that was an irritant to him. Do you know this statement, okay? I know that you are a gracious and a compassionate God. Go ahead and put it back on the screen there uh, so people can look at it. So this is a very, if you really think about it, this, this is the, the, the message of grace. In Christianity, the God of the Bible, this is this is. I mean, this is borrowing from the book of Exodus, okay? This is old, old, old theology about God. The description of God is he's gracious, period. He's compassionate, period. He's slow to anger, period. He's abounding in love, period. He's a God who relents in sending calamity, period. The gods that people were used to back then were not that way. The gods that people were used to back then, you do wrong, you get judged. You do good. Good will happen. Even today, the fastest growing religion in the world, statistically, is Islam. The, the, the God of Islam is not the same as the God of the Bible. They are not the same. Because in Islam, God will love you only on the condition of your good works. Only on the condition of your good works. If you do not have those good works, he will not love you. He will judge you. In 
the Bible, in Christianity, we have a God who died for us while we were yet sinners. Wow. Who became flesh, the Son of God, made manifest in the flesh, God with skin on, who died a violent and cruel and ghastly death in our place when we hated him. When we didn't even know his name. When we were Ninevites, if you will, Christ died for us. Do you know what the antidote is for being disturbed by the grace of God? You know, Jesus said he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. What? God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Kill them all is what we want sometimes. Wipe them out. They're ungrateful. They're wicked, they're ungodly, and they're getting worse and worse. Wipe them out, and yet you have Jesus saying he is kind to them. Why? Because he gives people time to repent. There will come a time where that will end. When Jesus returns, the judgment of God will be meted out on this whole planet. Once and for all, it will be meted out, and it will not be pretty. But now we have a time and a responsibility as believers to remember we were once Ninevites too. And we need to be about the business of telling our fellow Ninevites, uh, there's a God who loves you who died for you. You don't need to live in that mess of sin anymore, you know. There's a better way. But will we take that challenge? And that is the lesson of the book of Jonah. The whole thing is written so that Israel would remember their responsibility to be a light to the unbelieving world and in today's, in today's world for the church at large, all of us as individuals in the church around the world to take our responsibility to be salt and light in a dark place. And that's the challenge. So I, I, my, my, uh, you know, my homework for you, read the whole book of Jonah if you like. You've heard a kind of a summary of it today. But read the whole book of Jonah and see if you don't see yourself a little bit in this old prophet uh, and his struggle with the very, very nature of God.